This is Bucket Listening from First Horizon Bank, sharing first-hand stories from people who have found a way every day to live their bucket list. Everyone has aspirations. Often we see them as experiences for some time down the road, but we say, why wait? Welcome to Bucket Listening, where we're talking to amazing people who have found a way every day to live their bucket life. Hi, I'm your host, Tabitha Scott, and I'm so excited that you all could join us for this very special episode. On the show today, we have the legendary music industry game changer, Randy Grimmett, who has no trouble stepping outside of his comfort zone, by the way. He left a tenured executive position at ASCAP, which for those of you who don't know, is the prestigious American Society of Composers, Authors, and Publishers. He left not because he was unhappy, but because he saw a better way to do things, breaking with steeped tradition and becoming the first to enter the performing rights marketplace in over 75 years. Wow. Talk about breathing new life into an industry that has become quite comfortable in its ways. From working his way up the corporate ladder to managing one of only four music licensing companies in the nation, Randy's philosophies on living a bucket life have grown to include the value of work-life balance and instilling a sense of community at work while working remotely. And along with him, we also had the pleasure of being joined by Mark Ford. Mark is the Senior Vice President of Music Industry Banking at First Horizon, and he's worked closely with Randy over the years to turn his bucket list into a beautiful life. Randy and Mark, welcome to Bucket Listening. Thank you for having us, Tabitha. It's really nice to be here. Thank you for having us. Yeah, this is going to be so fun. Randy, you have spent your whole career in this music business and have accomplished so many amazing things. Could you tell us a bit about your lifelong love of music and how'd you get into that business? I do love music. I have no musical talent whatsoever. I can't sing or play a note or any kind of instrument, but I've always loved songwriters and I've always loved songs and I've always been keenly interested and aware of album credits because I grew up in an age where you could pull out the vinyl and look at the sleeve and see who wrote what and who played what. And from a very early age, I just really loved music, but I grew up in rural Oklahoma and really couldn't imagine that there was a career to be had in the music industry for someone who didn't have connections or didn't know anyone or didn't have a real in. So while I was in law school at the University of Oklahoma during my second year, I started seeing a band play on a regular basis because I would go see live music a lot. And I really liked this band. They were really, really good. And I thought, well, it'd be fun to kind of manage this band and work with them. But they weren't really looking for a manager. But I knew that they played gigs on Wednesday nights at a certain place in town and they were paid $75 for that gig. And without their permission, I called that venue and I renegotiated their guarantee to $150 per night. So instead of $75 per night, they got a guarantee of $150. And then I called them and said, if I can double your guarantee, will you make me your manager? And they did. <laughs> so when I was like 20 or 21 years old, I was managing a band in Oklahoma. It was a lot of fun. It went on for a couple of years. And then after law school, even though I had been doing some summer associate work at a firm in Tulsa, Oklahoma, doing probate 
law and banking law, I decided, you know what, I want to just see if I can make a go of it in the music business. So I literally packed up my Ford Escort in June of 1994. And I drove across the country and I crashed on friends' couches until I got a series of temp jobs and then finally landed in a job at New Line Cinema, which was a production company, working for a lawyer who did music licensing. So he licensed songs to film and he licensed score. New Line was bought by Turner Broadcasting. And that lawyer said to me, we're all about to be replaced because we've just been absorbed by a bigger company. You should try to find a job somewhere else. And that led to a series of interviews, which ultimately landed me at ASCAP in November of 94. And then I stayed there until May of 2013. So a long-term career there that I really enjoyed quite a bit. Yeah, that's awesome. What you do with music licensing can seem pretty darn complex from the outside. And most of us don't really know what goes into ensuring that we could just hit play on our favorite songs and it's going to come up. So could you tell us more about the traditional music licensing process and how global music rights or GMR has revolutionized that industry? Yeah, it is complicated and a little opaque. In every sound recording of a song, there are two distinct copyrights. One is the underlying words and music, and the other is the actual performance of that words and music by a vocalist. So if you think about Whitney Houston singing, I Will Always Love You, Whitney Houston and her record label own the master recording and therefore the copyright in the master recording for her rendition of that song. But Dolly Parton wrote the underlying words and music. And so she was and is a composer and a writer who would be represented by an organization like mine. But that underlying words and music under the copyright law has a right to be publicly performed and licensed for those public performances. The performing right and the ability to license that performing right has transitioned with the advent of technology to allow the performing rights organizations to continue to serve a critical role on behalf of songwriters and publishers, but also on behalf of the users themselves. So now... A performing rights organization will license streaming services like Spotify and Apple, television services like Netflix and NBC and ABC, terrestrial broadcast radio, satellite radio like Sirius XM, and then any place that's playing live music like a stadium or a bar, and then retail establishments like bars and restaurants and shopping centers and your local Gap. And I think the real key to why it's been such a vital part of the industry for so long is because performing rights organizations set up the nexus between a songwriter and a business user and creates an efficiency that cannot be replicated any other way. There's no possible way for an individual songwriter to go out and license the seven or 800,000 establishments in the U.S. marketplace on their own. And there's no way for a single radio station to get in touch with the thousands of songwriters and publishers that they would need to seek permission from in order to secure a license to actually use the music. So the performing rights organizations serve a vital and critical role in creating efficiency in the marketplace that allows any user through four licenses to essentially play anything they want. So your experience as a consumer is built on that foundation. Spotify has entered into a licensing agreement. And because of that, when I turn on Spotify, when you turn on Spotify, 
we're able to essentially listen to any recorded music that's ever been created over the last 123 years. So it's, it's pretty amazing, to be honest with you. Randy, you talk about the technology and how that's evolved the music industry as these cases were first starting to come up. And as these new technologies come out, we're hearing a lot of talk about artificial intelligence, for example. And I'm curious, how do you think AI is going to affect the music industry? And how is it impacting it now? Yeah, so it's it's impacting it now because there are a number of AI creations that have been released in the marketplace that are essentially impersonating popular singers and their music and creating a little bit of a maelstrom for how do you deal with that? What are the rights that are being used? And how do you either manage to license it or take it down, which is what most labels have decided to do? I'm excited about most of what I think is going to happen in the music industry for AI for a couple of reasons. One, I do think that there are tools in AI that can be utilized like any other tool. So I I think that if you don't necessarily know how to play the banjo, and even though there are already existing computer programs that allow you to replicate those kinds of things, I think AI can help you replicate that kind of stuff as well. I think AI could help a lyricist find exactly the right word or the next line. So to use it like a tool in the same way that producers currently use Pro Tools, I think is really a valuable aspect of AI. Where it gets a little trickier is when AI is intended to replace the actual art of songwriting or the actual art of composition. I do think that will happen, not replace wholly, but I do think there are going to be lots of instances of music generated by AI that will be used as like hold music. It's very possible that AI could replicate that and become something that is license free because there isn't an underlying copyright owner for that kind of usage. So I think those kinds of things will happen and continue to happen and evolve as AI develops. I will say I did, I was at the Songwriters Hall of Fame induction ceremony a couple of weeks ago and Joe Walsh was there to induct Jeff Lynn. And he mentioned in his opening remarks about AI and he just said, here's my feeling on AI until they can super glue furniture to a hotel room floor or land a television set in the middle of the pool at the Sunset Marquee, then they're not real musicians. And we don't have to think of them as real musicians until that time, which was a great little anecdotal story. I do think that we're going to have to grapple with this for the next few years, for sure, because it's going to be more and more relevant and useful and replacing certain aspects of music that we know to be created by humans today. Yeah, it's just it's opening up this whole can of worms that people haven't had to deal with before when I first heard about fake Drake and what that was all about. Could you say a little more about how artists are being dumped like that? Yeah, I mean, I have to say I I listened to that song. I actually thought they did a, a really good job creating a fake Drake and a fake weekend and a really good job creating a fake song as well. I do understand that the lyrics were not generated by AI, but just the sound was generated by AI. And in that case, his record label took a really strong stand that there's no way that AI could have replicated that without having been fed some of their copyrighted music. And I think that's exactly the right position to take. They had albums released. Those albums had been scoured probably hundreds of thousands of times by AI to try to create exactly what they wanted this to sound like so that it did sound like Drake. And I think the record labels very rightfully took issue with that and moved to try to protect their rights, even if it's in just the likeness kind of usage that we all have a right to, our names and likenesses. That actually 
is something that a copyright holder, as is true with all copyrights, have a right to say yes or no to. When you own a copyright, you have the right to say yes or no to the use of that copyright. And this is no different and something that I think will be uppermost in the immediate dealing with AI is to try to establish the right that the sound recordings themselves are not something that an AI generator can just farm through until they get the product that they're looking for. Yeah, and I think it's it's important at this point in time that companies like yours, Global Music Rights, you're really changing the landscape of performing rights. And I want you to talk a little bit about your philosophy when it comes to the clients you take on and the way you run your business. Yeah, so what I realized in 19 years at ASCAP is that ASCAP has, I think, close to 900,000 writer and publisher members now. BMI has roughly the same. And what I realized when I was there is that every quarter, a much smaller fraction than the whole would be paid something. And an even smaller fraction of that would be paid meaningful dollars. And an even smaller fraction than that would actually be earning the lion's share of the income. It was definitely the 90-10 rule, right? Where 90% of the money was earned by 10% of the membership base. And when we went into negotiations with users, it was really a group of established copyrights that we were always discussing. There was just a set of copyrights that kind of were the generator and the mover of what the conversation was. And if you think about it practically... And let's just take like the serious XM channel 70s on seven. No one's going to go back to 1975 and create a number one hit we've never heard of. I mean, the hits are the hits. They are what they are. It's a limited group of copyrights that have driven that marketplace. And so what we wanted to do was really only represent those copyrights that were moving the licensing needle, that were generating the conversation. And so if you look at our client base, we have about 140 clients. I mean, compared to our nearest, closest rival, CSAC, with 30 or 40,000, and then ASCAP and BMI with almost a million each. But what we've been able to do with those 125 or 35 clients is actually have marketplace negotiations with the users of music about the value that these copyrights bring to their service and what that should be priced at. Yeah, that's so important, thinking about it from every angle. And as a listener, you don't think about the complexity on the back end of (laughs) generating music and writing music and lyrics and what goes into it. I want to go back, Randy, for a minute about the inspiration that you get from art and from creative people that you mentioned early on. You love music. You don't play music, but you love it. And As part of your business life throughout your career, you said that influence from creative people and art has really helped. It was actually a song that inspired you to leave your job at ASCAP and then found the company you have. Tell me about that. Yeah, so I've always looked to songwriters and lyrics and songs to try to just provide some kind of lighthouse to thinking and what seems to be going on in my own personal life, my own personal mind. And at the time that I contemplated leaving ASCAP, a couple of years before that, we had been as an organization thinking about what does the future look like? We were about to hit 100 years. So I left in 2013, but ASCAP turned 100 years old in 2014. But in 2012, we started thinking about what does it look like to be an organization that's 100 years old? 
And how do you remain relevant in the evolving circumstances? And how do you become Netflix to someone else's Blockbuster or Instagram to someone else's Kodak? I mean, if you think about how quickly things can change and shift in the era that we live in now, it became really important for us to try to figure out ways to stay relevant. And a lot of the genesis of those things were what led to GMR, but it caused me, because I was very happy and I really revere and respect the organization, a lot of internal conflict about leaving a job that I'd been at for a long time and that I really loved and people that I really loved. And there is a song by John Mayer, who's one of my favorite artists. He happens to be a client now. And it's called Walt Grace's Submarine Test 1967. And the refrain of the song is, when you're done with this world, the next is up to you. And I really kind of had that song on repeat and listened to it a lot because I thought, well, I am kind of done with this world. I mean, I'm done with the way we do business at ASCAP, and I want to try to figure out a different way to do it. And in order to do it, I'm going to have to take a leap of faith to go out and make the next world look more like what I wanted it to look like when I was going through this process of thinking. So it was incredibly inspirational to me. It still is. We just celebrated our 10th anniversary in May of this year. And I spent a lot of time talking about that particular event because it just was something that gave me the faith and confidence to think that there probably was a way to do it. You couldn't see it when we jumped off the cliff, but we we felt like maybe there would be something that would work out for us. Yeah, I'm going to get to hear him with the Grateful Dead You'll here in a fun. couple weekends in Boulder. Yeah, I'm excited. I've never been to one of their concerts, but my significant other has been on that bus. So I guess it's time to go. <laughs> yeah, you'll have fun. You'll have a lot of fun. I've heard he's great. So Mark, we've talked a lot about business and I think you kind of make it look easy with what you're doing. I'm envious. It sounds like you have this really cool job, but you know, you're working with all these music professionals who do so many things in that industry and their financial needs are all over the place too. And I'm curious, like, how do you rein that in? Is there a specific approach you take that ensures you're always adding value to that? Or how do you deal with all of these complexities? It is a complex business, but like Randy, I just, I have a passion for it. So when you have a passion for whatever it is, it just, it really keeps you focused and interested and excited day to day. I love kind of being that cog in the wheel in the music industry because same with Randy and GMR, ASCAP and BMI, they all need a good bank and they all move money all over the world. So we play an important role in that. But yeah, I get excited every day working with the performance rights organizations, the artists, just being in tune with what's going on in the industry and how it works and how, how the money moves. It's exciting and a lot of fun. And you make it look so easy. Well, when you're having fun, it is. (laughs) I guess it is. But, you know, Randy, let's talk about having fun for a minute. Let's talk about your bucket life and your bucket list for a minute. What are some of the things that are on your bucket list? And is that something you have this kind of pie in the sky list for the future? Or what are the things that you're generating as you go that are on that list? Yeah. So I think there are a couple of ways I would answer that question. First of all, I lived in Los Angeles for 27 years, a long, long time. And I worked for 19 years in Los Angeles at ASCAP and then for eight years with GMR in Los Angeles. And then COVID struck and we were all sort of forced to go home. 
and work from home. And I wasn't very good at it. I'll be really honest with you. I was someone who was highly dependent on paper, highly dependent on printers, highly dependent on a network of people around me to help support the things that I was doing. And I had never built a home office. So I had sat at my coffee table for like six months, kind of hunched over my computer and trying to make sense of what was going on in the world, like all of us. And it took a little while for me to develop a rhythm. And in the midst of that, my youngest child, who was seventh and eighth grade when she was going through COVID and staying home from school, was seeing her older sister struggle with having her junior and senior year essentially shortchanged by COVID, as every family kids that age across the country did. And she kind of came up with a brilliant idea that she wanted to go to boarding school so that she could have a more normal high school experience in case COVID didn't go away and was asking really good questions like, when's this going to end? What's it going to be like? And we had been to and spent some time and owned some property in the Berkshires, which is rural Western Massachusetts. And we knew that there was a boarding school there. And I said to her again, during the middle of COVID, if this is you know, what you really want to do, you can apply to this one school and you can start there and I'll just work from there for a year. And then if it works out, maybe you can stay and continue your education there. I won't be as sort of whiplashed by all the changes in our life with one going off to college and one going to boarding school. And so collectively as a family, we moved to Western Massachusetts. And what I didn't count on then was how much I was going to enjoy living in a rural town. And so one of my big bucket list items, which was eventually to retire to a place like this, got fulfilled very early on because two years ago, I moved here full time and I operate as CEO and co-founder of GMR in an office of one here while we have all of the rest of our team working in Los Angeles. I have an incredible executive leadership team that keeps all the trains running on time and doing all the things that need to be done. But we've all managed to work it out really, really well and sufficiently. So for me, a major bucket list item was achieved by being able to live and work in a place that feels much more like home to me than Los Angeles did and has been much better for the life of our family. Beyond that, what I would say is a lot of my bucket list items are related to what my aspirations are for global music rights. We have an amazing client base. I've been really lucky to have the opportunity to work with some of the most amazing songwriters and artists that have ever worked in the industry. And our goal is to you know retain them and to continue to provide them with the kind of high-level service that they expect so that they won't ever look to another PRO as a choice. We want to look at what does it look like to properly manage copyrights on their behalf as the world continues to shrink, right? I mean, now you have services like Spotify that are operable around the world. So every artist has a very global outreach in what they're doing. So how do we serve them best? So I would say, you know, if I could hearken back to that refrain, it's like, even though we've done very well over the last 10 years, I want the next decade to refine even further the kind of changes and improvements we can make in this industry on behalf of our clients. That's really probably the biggest item. Yeah. And, you know, Randy, you touch on a couple of really important things there that I think our listeners can resonate with. And one is striking this new balance of the hybrid workplace and work-life balance remotely and adjusting to that and finding new ways and creative ways 
to continue business. And, and the other is starting up a business and all that goes with that. And Mark, I want to come back over to you because there are clients that are in similar situations to what Randy was in when he was first going out on his own and leaving ASCAP and starting Global Music Rights. And I'm just curious, what are some of the most important things that you would advise that would be unique to starting up in the music industry? Get a good bank. (laughs) No, I've been so impressed over the last 10 years. I mean, I was there with Randy during the last, call it four or five years of his time at ASCAP. And when he shared with me his plans for founding Global Music Rights, I was right there in his court, just really excited for him. I could see he had a passion in it. And yeah, just helping them with whatever they need from a personal standpoint and from a business standpoint, even if it's just being a sounding board for Randy or throwing around ideas. I love that about what we do. And I feel like that's a fun role for me because I do feel like I'm independent in a way because I'm very agnostic when it comes to the PROs. I want to support them all. But I also learn from them just as I try and help them learn on the finance and the banking side of it. So just watching people grow and develop over time is just so, so meaningful for me. I've developed such a close relationship with Randy and yeah, I've just really loved our time together over the last, call it 12, 15 years. Yeah. And that relationship is really important, but there are also challenges along the way, I'm sure. Are there any challenges that stick out to you, specifically to the music industry? Fortunately, we've had a lot of tailwinds in the industry, just from everything that Global Music Rights is doing to what the Spotify's are doing. So we had a couple of decades there where the music industry was really kind of on the decline from a revenue and financial standpoint. And we kind of hit an inflection point here maybe eight, nine, ten years ago and have really had a lot of tailwind as an industry and I think more to come. So I don't want to say it's been smooth sailing, but it has been a very nice economy for music, even during the up and down overall economy. You think of the 2008 financial catastrophe we had. Well, music failed fairly well through it all. I mean, that was even kind of the same point that they hit their inflection point and revenue started growing. So all in all, the last really 15 years in the music industry have been some of the best times coming off what could have been some of the worst times in the industry as things turn digital. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And I'm curious, Randy, I'm going to ping back to you because what Mark said, it really goes back to as everything changes, what is our definition of success? And I'm curious, Has your definition of success changed over the years? And how much does Mark and his team play a role in that? They play a big role. I want to answer that in a second. I do want to harken back to something Mark said, which is having a relationship with a good banker has been a critical thing for me, both personally and professionally. On the professional side, Mark alluded to this, but I don't think he actually gave it the full weight of what I rely on, which is... Just being able to talk through complicated things with someone who understands them and who can open up sort of the thinking process has been a critical function of our relationship and something that I've come to rely on. And I would say that it's nice to know that as you are walking through something or trying to solve something, 
that you have the discretion of someone that you can trust because, you know, I'm in a highly competitive business and there are certainly opportunities where if my competitor got wind of something I was working on, it could like at least cause a hiccup in the process. And I've just always appreciated the fact that beyond his thought leadership, Mark brings a level of discretion, integrity, honesty, trustworthiness that has been critical to the things that we've worked on together. And then to answer the question about success, I'd say, I don't think my definition of success has changed. I really look at and encourage everyone that works with us at Global Music Rights to think about their own personal sort of metric of success. Like, are you learning from this? Are you growing from this? I mean, one of the things that I think was the most challenging for the period of time during COVID when we were all stuck at home is helping young people hit the aspirational marks that they wanted to hit in terms of career development, because, you know, it was almost like status quo for everyone for two years. And you didn't see a lot of growth. You didn't see a lot of development. You didn't see a lot of people kind of having light bulb moments or being able to contribute in a way that I think going back to the office has allowed us to do quite significantly. And I really enjoy the process and think that most of our team enjoys the process of collaboration And so for us, I think success looks like everyone contributing in a way that's meaningful and leading to the development of a better outcome for whatever the situation is. And I think when you work in that kind of spirit of collaboration, even when things don't go your way, even when we really thought we had a client on the cusp of coming to GMR and it doesn't happen or thought we were in a license negotiation that was going to go one way and doesn't. I think the feeling that you get from collaborating together in a way in which everyone is kind of equally rowing the boat still allows you to take from that a lot of lessons that can compound your success for the next go round. And that's been a really important factor for all of us on our team. We started with four people. We have like 100 employees now, over 100 employees. And that to me, that's been really interesting because when we first started, it was like, Everyone did a little bit of everything. I mean, because I had a legal background, I was negotiating the contracts and writing the agreements. And we really all chipped in. Now we have people who it's very easy to get kind of siloed into your area of expertise. And I really, really try to encourage people to understand the big picture, because I think the most beneficial thing for me that ever happened in my career was having an opportunity to kind of branch into lots of things in my years at ASCAP so that I ultimately got to understand like how the distribution worked really, really well, how we got people to become clients, how we negotiated licenses with people and the ability to kind of segue into those things throughout my 19 years there was what gave me the sort of blind confidence to, to think that we could start a competitor and that it would be successful. So... I do encourage people to think about success in their own terms, in terms of like, how much are you growing every day in your job? I love that. And it's it's inspirational to our listeners and to me as well. I'm going to move to a rapid fire series of questions for you guys. So are you ready to play rapid fire round? Sure. Sounds fun. Let's <laughs> do it. All right. Let's do it. So, Randy, let's start with you. Let's pretend you've got a band and let's call it the Randy Grimmin Experience. And I'm going to pull up to your concert merch table. What is the name of the tour printed on your merchandise? 
Wow, that's I mean that is a great question. Um, You're welcome. Yeah, that is such a great question. I'd say it's called on my way. I feel like I'm always on a journey. And so it's just, you know, it's just about taking one step after the other. That's what that particular tour would be called. All right. We've got the Mark Ford experience. What is your merch gonna be? I think we're at the copy off one of my clients, but I also had a hand in naming this tour, but the Can't Stop Us Now tour. And it's just a real motivational, work hard, grind it out. Don't let people knock you down or keep you down, you know, just keep fighting. So it's kind of more of a a motivational theme. Yeah. Now, Mark, I'm going to stick with you for a second because I know you've seen events and shows all over the world with some of the biggest artists around. And Is there a show that is still sitting out there as a bucket list item for you? Ooh, I've been ticking them off. Actually, I just recently went to Billy Joel for the first time, really enjoyed that. So I'm I'm trying to hit some of the ones that are kind of maybe reaching the tail end of their career that you don't know how much longer they're going to do it. So I would probably have to say like a Rolling Stones. I haven't seen them yet. But uh, I did get to do the Eagles last year. That was an amazing one. So I was very impressed with the Eagles. But I'd probably have to go with the Rolling Stones at this point. Would Maybe Kiss. I like Kiss, too. Yeah, awesome. So, Randy, what about you? Is there a show at a certain place that you would like to have on your list? No, not one forthcoming. I actually just had an experience of being able to see Taylor Swift on her Eras tour, which I thought was incredible. The sheer physical power of her as a performer to be able to accomplish that every night in front of 70 and 80,000 people. But beyond that, who she is as an artist and a performer and someone who has really, really changed the face of the music industry. That was a big deal. It was not unlike seeing the original cast of Hamilton when that was on Broadway. I mean, it was that much of a cultural experience, I think, for everyone who's seen that tour. That's incredible. Lucky you on the era tour. I got shut out of that one. I got tickets for it, but my wife and daughters wanted to go and take their friends. So I got shut out. Dad didn't get to go, but but my wife and kids went. I'll tell you what we did, Mark. We actually excluded our children and my wife and I went <laughs> and told our children, they're going to have to find their own way. This is one ticket that I'm going to get. And by the way, I don't feel too bad for them because my oldest daughter has seen Harry Styles like three times this year. So she's, oh, she's wow. gotten her fill of concert tickets. She's a happy cat. I am certain about that. Yeah. So last question here, guys. What is the most unexpected piece of advice you were ever given? Maybe you weren't quite ready for it at the time, but it keeps ringing true the more experience that you get under your belt. Mark, let's go with you first. And then, Randy, I'm going to end up with you. I always go back to one. I, I was very close with an attorney growing up. My mom was a paralegal and I became very close with her boss. And And he wrote me a, an amazing letter as I was going off to college and he re- reminded me, you know, go have fun, work hard first, but go have fun. And then I went out and got my first D ever. And I was like, oh, so that's what he was talking about. And so then from that point forward, I took it way more serious after that first semester. And yeah, definitely uh, did better. But I didn't listen at first, but then it finally caught on to me what he was talking about. (laughs) Nice. And you've been cooking along ever since. Yeah. All right, Randy, how about you? What's that piece of advice that you just can't get out of your head? It just keeps ringing more true over the years. 
Yeah, this one's a tough one because in business, there's always a fine line to this. But but when we started GMR, one of my mentors said, you know, the thing about starting a new business is it's going to be tough. There are going to be challenges. And what you have to do is never fabricate or, his words, lie about what's going on. Like you always have to be just willing to accept what's happening and tell the truth, especially when you've got a partner like my partner, Irving Azoff. You just can't be in a position where something you say isn't unequivocally true. And that's not always an easy thing because you don't want to deliver bad news to people ever, especially when they've invested a lot of money and time in it. But I will say that over the years, that has served me better than anything else because what I find is it then leads to a point where people spring into action and become partner-oriented about how to solve a problem rather than blameful about something that happened. And I think it's only those times when people try to sort of hide something that it's easier to come back and say like, well, why didn't you tell me or what was going on that the blame starts? But if you just present things as here's a problem that we have, and I'm not going to sugarcoat it, I'm going to tell you exactly the unvarnished reality of what we're facing. It really gives people a chance to rise to their best selves and spring into action as your partner and do things. And I say this a lot with the young people who work for us. It's like there's really nothing that you can do short of illegal things that would warrant a really strong negative reaction except for not being completely truthful about like whatever the situation is so we can try to solve it together. And the more that that has been put into place, I think the more successful the businesses have been. So that was a good piece of advice. That's excellent. I love it. Yeah, that is good advice. And Randy, you're the real deal. Thank you so much. And Mark as well for being here, taking your time to join us on the show today. And a special thanks to Randy for sharing your amazing and inspiring story. I want to say a big thank you to Randy and Mark for taking time to join us on the show today and a special thanks to Randy for sharing his amazing story and his perspective on life with us. And thanks to all of our listeners out there coming along for our conversation. I hope you enjoyed hearing from Randy as much as I enjoyed speaking with him today. And if you did like the show, be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. This has been Bucket Listening, presented by First Horizon Bank. I'm Tabitha Scott, and I can't wait for you to join us again soon.